0: Hello and greetings from Asheville, North Carolina. In case my voice is unfamiliar to you, I'm Dr. Han Lai, the founder and current spiritual director of Urban Dharma. Thanks to the wonders of technology, we have been able to share a good number of the programs we have offered the last six years in Asheville, and occasionally programs I have done elsewhere with this podcast. I hope you have found these programs educational, informative, and helpful to your own spiritual journey. I want to also take this opportunity to make a personal appeal to you to help us to continue to do what we have been doing here. Urban Dharma, North Carolina is entirely 100% volunteer-based. We do not have any employees, and I am neither on the payroll of Urban Dharma nor do I accept any offerings from the community. Our operating costs are as slim as it can be, but nonetheless, we still need your support and help. So, would you consider either a one-time donation, or better yet, become one of our sustaining members who give on a regular basis, so that we can continue to give the gift of Dharma to any and all who need it? If you are ready to help today, please drop us a line at benefactors at udharmanc.com. Again, benefactors at udharmanc.com. Or visit our giving page on our website, www.udharmanc.com. Again, www.udharmanc.com. But if you're not in a position to make a donation today, you can still help us by simply telling someone else about this podcast. Help us reach more people so that we can share the Dharma even more widely than we are currently doing. And finally, thank you and please enjoy the following teaching brought to you by Urban Dharma, North Carolina. Hello and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. This is part three of a series about karma, the Buddha's compassionate explanation of reality, that our thoughts and actions determine our future. Dorje Lopan, Dr. Han Lai, will help us unpack this important concept and show how the Buddha's teachings on karma can help us live good and happy lives for ourselves and others despite a feeling of living in difficult times. All mothers sentient beings boundless as the sky especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me, and those who create obstacles on my path to liberation and omniscience. May they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I will establish them in a state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All mother sentient beings boundless as the sky, especially those enemies who hate me, and who harm me, and those who create obstacles on my path to liberation and omniscience. May they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I will quickly establish them in a state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All my beings boundless as the sky, especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me, and those who create obstacles on my path to liberation and omniscience. May they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I will quickly establish them in a state of the most perfect and precious for them thus until i achieve enlightenment i perform virtuous deeds with body speech and mind until death i perform virtuous deeds with body speech and mind from now until this time tomorrow i perform virtuous deeds with body speech and mind to the top of page six In the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha most excellent, I take refuge until enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and other perfections, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. In the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha most excellent, I take refuge until enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and other perfections, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. In the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha most excellent, I take refuge until enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and other perfections, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. May all other sentient beings boundless as the sky have happiness and the causes of happiness, May they be liberated from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they never be separated from the happiness that is free from sorrow. May they rest in equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. May all mother sentient beings, boundless as the sky, have happiness and the causes of happiness. May they be liberated from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they never be separated from the happiness that is free from sorrow. May they rest in equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. May all mother sentient beings, boundless as the sky, have happiness and the causes of happiness. May they be liberated from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they never be separated from the happiness that is free from sorrow. May the rest in our free, free from touch and tempers. Good afternoon, welcome and welcome back to uh, this short series on uh, what's karma got to do with it. Uh, We started yesterday and uh, while I see that most of you here today were here yesterday, I also see some new faces for today. Uh, So very briefly we will go over what was covered yesterday, which maybe even people who were here yesterday would like to have a quick refresh of, uh, re- refresher of what we covered yesterday. Uh, so one of the things uh, I want to also uh, mention, uh, which I mentioned yesterday, is that uh, the approach that we're going to take to studying this topic on karma uh, is uh, in a way uh, based on looking at some of the earliest notion of the word karma uh, that are even pre-Buddhist, like predating the Buddha's time by maybe even a thousand years. Uh, so very early in uh, in India, uh, as represented in the most ancient of all texts uh, in the world, really, uh, in this what was originally an oral text known as the Veda or the Vedas. Uh, we have already this word karma. Uh, But in the Veda, the use of the word karma had a much more limited scope. It was only um, used in the sense of what kind of action? Ritual Uh, ritual actions. So ritually prescribed actions. So this is pre-Buddhist. So karma in the Veda... Uh, in the earliest stratum of the Veda uh, was used to refer to ritually prescribed action. And within that system of thought, these ritually prescribed actions uh, have a correspondence with how order is kept in the universe. So these ritually prescribed actions, I should emphasize, uh, which maybe yesterday I didn't say so clearly, uh, they are not arbitrary. They are prescribed for human beings to perform because they are in sync with the forces that keep the cosmos in order. So that there is a direct link between the way in which the universe, the cosmos, is kept in order. And that order can only be maintained, that microcosmic order, can only be maintained if on the micro, the macrocosmic, and then on the microcosmic level, human society, maintains this set of prescribed ritual actions that puts human society in order. And as human society is put in order, then the broader order, cosmic order, uh, is maintained. Now you see how then this this certain aspects of this understanding of karma gets carried forward uh, to other to developments that will come later. So then in the later period in Indian uh, kind of world views, in a period that started uh, probably around 8th century BC, uh, around that time you see the rise of what was, you know, now scholars would refer to this Upanishadic period as opposed to the Vedic period as the earlier. Period. Now we enter into this period called the Upanishadic because it's based on these texts that call themselves the Upanishads. Now, here, among other things, of course, there's a lot of very interesting things uh, in this second period, Uh, but if we look again solely at the question of karma, then the earliest layer of understanding of karma is maintained. However, now karma came to denote Not just ritually prescribed actions, but in fact, one could say almost all actions. Which is sort of extending the notion of the importance of ritually prescribed actions to say, you know, it's not just ritually prescribed actions, but it covers a broader range of actions that could include brushing teeth and going to the market that all these actions have implications. Alongside this broader use of the word karma, that it's not only action, but now there is more a focus on how these actions produce moral results. And not just simply results. Right? So, for example, I'm holding up, yeah, this uh, gong striker here, right? And when I let go from my fingers, it falls, yeah? And it rolls away, Uh, and it's coming back, good. now, so, so, so here, right, um, is there karma or not? Well, actually, it depends because in that period, some people believe that that was karma. Mm? That the cause was me letting this drop, and the effect it's not so much, even those who believe that there is karma going on here, the effect that they're talking about is not the fact that this dropped. Okay? Because that's not a moral result. That's simply just the effect. Now, different people, Groups sort of have different ideas of what kind of moral result could come from an act of dropping this gong striker. But as we will see later, for the Buddha, his understanding of karma, he would say, in this instance, this is not karma. This is not karma. Even though it is action, Right, But it's not how he would use the notion of karma. He says, this is just, you know, uh, action, but without any moral consequences. Yes? So this Vedic and Upanishadic, is that the right concept? Yeah, yeah. This idea that uh, the, the ritual and mundane actions... Um, have any effect on keeping the order of the cosmos? Yes. Is that like a human attempt to ex- to have control over? Uh, well, probably you could look at it that way, but you know they don't say it that way. <laughs> no, but yes, you, you, you could certainly look at it that way. That it's an attempt by human beings to have a sense of control of things, but within those systems, they're like no, that's how things are controlled, not just a sense. Okay, that, yeah, that's the way they viewed. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, I love it when these uh, commercials, you know, uh, that uh, all these, whether it's home security or uh, business, you know, investment security, they always very carefully use this phrase. It gives you a sense mm-hmm. of security. They know enough not to sell you security because you can sue them when it becomes insecure but a sense of security, then the burden is on your side. (laughs) Yes? So, the idea of karma arises at a point in time, and is what we're experiencing the evolution of karma to subtler, subtler understandings until the time of the Buddha where the full understanding of that starts to arise? Well... Uh, one could construct the narrative that way and you know and i guess i am constructing the narrative that way to come to the buddhist conclusion <laughs> you could see how someone in the vedic tradition say no it's a complete idea already needs right. no improvement but those ideas <laughs> keep falling apart well for some people right for other people like no that's sufficient we don't accept this Buddhist thing. Or or these other views that were been that we've looked at yesterday. Yeah. But but I am. I am kind of trying to show because our interest here, my responsibility here, my interest here, but assuming your interest here is to learn the Buddhist notion. So I'm trying to trace this kind of backwards. Right? So from hindsight, I'm constructing this narrative. There is that, I don't know, um, that Seinfeld episode where the whole episode was uh, backwards. They came back from India. (laughs) And then that wedding (laughs) and five Brazilian things kind of happened and it just keeps going back and back and back and back. So, you know, from hindsight, one could construct all kinds of narratives, right, based on the evidence and come up with a fairly reasonable story, I hope. Yeah, that's what we're doing here. Okay, so here, uh, now it's still kind of pre-Buddhist, yeah? There are all these positions that say, this is karma, right? But Buddha's interest is, it. Uh, he's like, no, th- th- this is not karma, okay? Now, of course, later we will see how he says, this could be karma. How could this be karma? If you throw it <coughs> <coughs> into <laughs> yeah, if I hurled it at someone with intention, uh, the intention of like, you know, causing harm, or the intention might be, you know, that there is a, I don't know, poisonous something about to bite someone and I hurled it, right? Then it becomes karma. And in that case, right? if I hurled this, right, because I wanted to hurt someone, right, so this goes and it succeeds in hitting whoever I tried to hit. Yeah? The fact that this hits someone is not the moral result that we're talking about here. Right? I, I, I clarified yesterday. Yeah? That is just an effect the effect of me hurling this at someone and actually hitting that person, that is not the karmic result that the Buddha was concerned about. The karmic result that the Buddha is concerned about or or calls our attention to is what will happen to me for having done that act? What kind of moral result will come? Whether it's immediate or later or next life, that's the kind of karmic result that he's concerned about. Yes. Not, not to pick it apart, but even if you drop something, then uh-huh. if that thing has consequence and you were neglectful in dropping it, could that also be a? It doesn't just have to be a burst of anger, or a, I mean, I could think of other things you could simply drop negligently that. Oh yeah, would sure. Cause Harm in the world or to others. yeah, sure. And, and, and by my not having well, yeah, if it's something else, that. here is the example of the striker, right? Yeah, you're I you're mean, what you kill an ant if I intended to kill, no, I, I, I mean, even, even had, if you didn't, what no, then it's different. That's I, different. I, yeah. I'm not asking about that, yeah. I'm asking about anger throwing it isn't the only. Oh yeah, like a sure. Dramatic example. I mean, literally dropping something neglectfully. Yeah, sure. Where I could have been paying. Oh, uh, of course, money. sure. That we can talk about that. Right. Right now, the striker is okay. the only thing I want to talk about. Okay. That I just dropped. That that case. What was going on? No, that's not karma. That doesn't have anything to do with karma. That's just you know action, uh, action, and what made this drop? Now we know. We say gravity. <laughs> yeah, Buddha's time, you know, s- some other scientists, people who studied the physical sciences, gave other explanations yeah, for what's going on. Yeah. So, and, and yesterday we have not quite directly looked at yet Buddha's way of talking about karma. Then, from there, we went to look at, more specifically, the different views about why things happen. Not exactly different views about karma, but but it pertains, it relates to the issue of karma. So we did a quick survey of what's known as uh, the six theories about why things happen. Uh, which is on this handout on the page one the six theories um, because Buddha taught about karma and the way he understood karma principally to answer the question of why things happen and not just that we also learned that he was in fact, maybe more concerned, not just about why things happen, but what? Results uh, of actions. Results of actions, but... The intention. Mm, we can do something about it. What makes action possible? Mine. No, I mean like, I mean he's concerned about that that question what yeah what would encourage us to act in certain ways and not to act in certain <coughs> other ways yeah in other words what makes moral actions moral decisions possible yeah? what kind of a world view makes action Meaningful. So he was concerned about that. So in his rejection of these six theories, you can see again and again that his problem with all, every single one of them <coughs> is that he felt that when you subscribe to this kind of view, it makes making moral decisions pointless. And that he was most concerned about. Now here you can see how um, certain concerns and criticism of the idea of karma and what people think is the Buddhist idea of karma is in fact something that the Buddha himself was very concerned about. Because there are some who think that, you know, ah, the way you Buddhists talk about karma makes acting in the world pointless. And that would be what kind of understanding of karma? Uh, Or more specifically, what we've looked at? Under the three positions, right? Mm -hmm. With the first one. That all experiences, all of that is caused by what was done in the past. As if karma is only about what happened in the past. Now, believe it or not, I think a lot of people think of karma that way. Mm -hmm. Including Buddhist practitioners you know, people will say, oh, I guess it's my bad karma. Right? They say, oh, uh, I can't do this, or I can't have this, or I can't uh, attend this, or, you know, I, I, I hear this a lot. It, maybe it's just people being uncomfortable or apologetic, you know. They said, oh, I can't come to this teaching. Uh, it must be my bad karma. As if... You know, like karma is fate. And the understanding of fate as something that is inalterable, cannot be changed. With absolute certainty. No space for change. You know, people will say, oh, it must be my bad karma. We have talked about in the past mm-hmm. the idea that, that choice is not always available. Mm-hmm. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. We'll come to the Buddhist view. (laughs) He spent a whole time telling us what karma is not. We're ready for that. We're all jumping ahead. Yeah, because we need to know what karma is not because actually these views are not stuck in the ancient times. We routinely on any given day Believe in you know a bunch of these ideas. Mm-hmm. So this is not just some abstract study of ancient people believing weird things. Yeah, there are present-day incarnations of these views mm-hmm. <laughs> that we kind of like believe in and operate from. Yeah, and and as uh, I think it was John uh, pointed out yesterday, what's interesting about these six theories is that you can sort of see, uh, at least from a a Buddhist-biased position or a Buddhist-based position, you can sort of see that there is some element of reality or some element of truth uh, in these six positions. But it's off. uh, it, It begins at some place of clarity that quickly then gets obscured. And then it kind of gets, quote-unquote, perverted. And that's an interesting observation because in the larger kind of Buddhist understanding of the nature of mind, we say that in the first instance of awareness, it's pure. But in the second instance, and following subsequent instance, confusion is all that there is. So even with these kind of philosophical, you know, big ideas, positions held, there's often something in there that corresponds with how things are. But then it then gets elaborated, it gets clouded, uh, then it, it, it turns into something else. Yeah, so these six views, the first one, is what's called non-action. And if you remember, what I kind of characterized this position. Now, remember that these six positions were not just, the Buddha wasn't saying that people or society in general during his time has, you know, these six types of understandings. They are actually, these six are very specifically referring to actually six ascetic groups, actually six spiritual communities. So so these are not just people, you know, thinking that they're living a good life, but mistakenly thinking that they're living a good life. They're not like worldly people. But these are actually. Religious or spiritual communities. Uh, so he says, you know, uh, these Brahmins and contemplatives, you know. And so this first group uh, led by this person called Purana Kashapa basically what he seemed to have taught is that um, the way we live our lives should be natural. In the sense of, in nature, there is no good or bad. Good or bad are essentially human constructs that we should live as close as possible to how nature is. Now, very strong examples are used. Here it says, you know, you kill, you steal, you intimidate, you threaten, you cause other people to threaten, and all of that. And, and, and it says, uh, but at the end of that, <clears throat> so it lists out a whole long list of clearly negative actions to make a point. And then a line about making sacrifices, being generous. All of that is pointless. Instead, you should understand that the real contemplative, the real spiritual life is to be lived by not getting caught up in these categories right, that are human constructs. So that if your nature, and in a way, then nature has determined how we should act. So a tiger should just be a tiger. And a human should just be a human. Whatever a human means, you know, according to this. So so here it's saying, be natural. Don't act. Because action uh, is motivated by human desires. Don't act. This notion bears some resemblance to certain, I would say, uh, certain understandings of Taoism. Be as one with nature as possible. I'm not saying that's, you know, definitely how Taoists look at things, but a certain way in which people have talked about Taoism. Be as naturalistic as possible. And so in that way, you're in harmony with everything. But the Buddha criticized that and said, no. That's, that's not, you know, uh, that's not the kind of view that will help us live meaningful lives. Yeah? Second position is this thing called purification through wandering on. And this Is attributed to a a teacher by the name of Makali Gosala. And Makali Gosala has a a pretty complex and and complicated notion of um, spiritual evolution that takes place over long periods of time, over many lifetimes. And it's an evolution what do i mean by that is that every lifetime leads to a more evolved state so his course of action or his recommendation is that we should understand that there is this whole process yeah that there is this whole process that we should know and then simply let it takes take its own course of unfolding. So that trying to force it, trying to speed up the ripening of past karma, or to Uh, block the ripening of past karma uh, is futile. So it's sort of a variation of the first except that in this second position they do believe in many lifetimes. And then they believe that there is a natural progression to uh, more and more evolved states of existence until you're finally liberated. So here it means purification, or you could say evolution through many, many lifetimes. And certainly there are forms of new age belief of multiple lifetimes that say that. That say that then, you know, eventually we'll all be evolved. And you're lucky if you're a lizard right now, you know, or lizard spirits or whatever that is. Right? Lizard and the two races. Oh, the lizard people. Yeah, the lizard people. Yes. I don't know much about them. I just know. Hmm? I think so. No. I don't know. But there are lizard people. And lizard is good. There's something that's not good. Right. Um, Yes. Probably more than one book now. Yes. Yes. Uh, There are some lizard people. um, They're taking over. No, they are good, I think, lizard, right? Oh, if they're going to be the dominant Yes, yeah. And you can join the lizard race. Um, I think the cats are taking over. That would be an improvement. Well. Well. <laughs> So that's the, the second position that we looked at. And then the third position is this one called Annihilation. So Ajita Kesakambalin. And what we can understand with this is that uh, it talks about how... And this one, I think, bears resemblance to uh, the kind of belief that we have today, which says that essentially... Uh, This is a kind of spirituality that that we do find among us today, which is a primarily kind of secular humanist form of spirituality. Very attractive, you know. You you can see how each of these can be attractive. Uh, Of course, the Buddha himself found them lacking. And, And again, my job is not intending to convince you of that. But rather, let's see, you know, where the Buddha finds problems with any of these and how his understanding of karma might offer another way of thinking about why things happen and how we can live meaningful lives by acting meaningfully. So this third one called annihilation, basically it says that... um, It says here, the words of those who speak of existence after death are false and empty chatter. With the breakup of the body, the wise and the foolish alike are annihilated, destroyed. They do not exist after death. So the good life is being a good person here. And that's all that matters. Yeah? And it says here, see... A person is composite of four primary elements. At death, the earth returns to. The internal earth element returns to the external earth element. The internal fire element returns to the fire element. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that's it. You become one back to nature. (coughs) Again, and that's it. And certain passages, in fact, in the Taoist canon, seems to talk like that and say, my eyes, you know, where it sparkles become the stars. Yeah. My, you know, fluids in the body joins the river and everything disperses. Again, it's a very kind of secular humanist form of spirituality that says then everything just disperses. That's it. And the Buddha found this, again, to be lacking. I would say, this way of thinking, mm, we'll look at his, uh, <coughs> his, his sort of criticism of that and say that it's incomplete, yeah, this view. The next one is called non-relatedness. And here, (coughs) what we have here is the idea that now here it it bears some resemblance with the one before in that it analyzes (coughs) the human person, right? And say that, yes, not only are we consisted of these four elements, the physical elements, earth, which is the solidity, the quality of solidity. Fire is the quality of heat. Wind is the quality of motion. Water is quality of fluidity. That we are not only consistent, consisting of these four great elements, but there is also this primal substance called pain, and primal substance called pleasure, and then finally, now you have six and the seventh, the soul. The soul. And what happens at death is that these all go their separate ways. Now they here it doesn't tell you, you know, like what happens to the soul, but the point is that all these are immutable. Nothing you can do would change the immutable, eternal qualities of these seven substances. So everything is illusory. Han Lai here is illusory. Robin there is illusory. Uh, The guy walking around out there is illusory. All that there is is these seven types of primal substances temporarily coming together. And even if you were to, again, none of these groups were advocating slicing people up. Although all the examples given by them says even if you were to cut. So even if you were to slice through Han Lai, actually nothing is harmed. Because the soul cannot be harmed. And the four elements cannot be harmed. And pain and pleasure, as ultimately existing categories, cannot be harmed. So, and so here, non relatedness, meaning that these seven things are independent, immutable, unchanging. Don't stress. And you can see how subscribing to this you will overcome fear of death. Nobody dies. Nobody can be slain. (laughs) Because these are, what's real is immutable. So yesterday we stopped here. This next one we want to look at, so we'll read, it says, uh, Niganta Nataputta said to me, great king, there is the case where the Niganta, the knotless one, knotless here means liberated. Liberated. Knotless. Yeah? Without knots. Not tied up. Liberated. It's restrained with the fourfold restraint. Now how is the uh, Niganta Restrained with the fourfold restraint. There is the case where the niganta is obstructed by all waters, conjoined with all waters, cleansed with all waters, and suffused with all waters. This is how the niganta is restrained with the fourfold restraint. When the niganta, a knotless one, is restrained with such fourfold restraint, he is said to be a knotless one, niganta, a son of nakta, Nattaputta, with his self perfected, his self controlled, his self established. Thus, when asked about a fruit of the contemplative life visible here and now, Niganda Nattaputta answered with fourfold restraint. Here is talking about this particular spiritual uh, group that believes that by adhering to these fourfold restraints, one can be freed. So this juxtaposition between restraint and freedom. that Ironically, to be free, you free yourself by these four restraints. Obstructed by all waters, conjoined with all waters, cleansed with all waters, suffused with all waters. Um, this is a rather obscure reference. Um, and here, and I have to <coughs> confess that you know I didn't really you know dig too deep into this, here actually it's referring to a Buddhist understanding of what the Jain religion believes in. So Niganta Nataputta, of these six r- spiritual groups, This is the only group that exists to this day as a living spiritual community, as a distinctive living spiritual community. Uh, These are the Jains in India, primarily. Um, Now, I don't know, uh, I'm not able to speak to the the specifics of these four restraints, (coughs) but kind of more general characterization of the... Jain understanding of why things happen and what is the solution to things, to the problem. Uh, very, the Jain religion is very similar to the, Buddhist, the early Buddhist teachings. In fact, uh, some Jains today will tell you that uh, Siddhartha ripped off the religion from them. Um, because their, their leader is also called Buddha, Awake. But, but more commonly they call him the Jina, meaning like the conqueror, which is also a term that we use for the Buddha, he who has conquered yeah, the afflictive emotions, and even in the depiction of Mahavira, which is Nigata Nataputta in this source, Mahavira is called the great hero, the great conqueror. Um, Jina is more like. Lord Protector. Uh, Mahavira, even in his representation, looks very much like Buddha, uh, the way he is depicted. And he was a senior contemporary of Siddhartha. And so in the Jain religion, and, and of course, you know, this is an oversimplification of it, uh, um, they believed essentially that we all have this indwelling divine spirit or life called the jiva. Right? Jiva. So it's it's an it's a variant term you know, which in Hindu sources is often called Atman. Right? Like the indwelling divine spirit. But in Jain they call it the jiva. And Again, to kind of terribly, uh, uh, kind of you know, simplify this, the goal is to free the jiva from the constraints of the physical body. That our problem, suffering, why things happen, specifically why samsara happens, is because the jiva is trapped in the body. So one should do whatever possible to free, to liberate this jiva. And to do that entails very uh, dedicated efforts. So the monks and nuns of Jain religion today they are separated they, they have kind of two traditions two lineages so to say <coughs> one is known as the sky clad and one is known as the cotton clad I think the cotton clad uh, they actually wear cotton and the sky clad means what naked naked, naked? So they, they are naked. Why? Because that is the least harm that you're creating. Do anything. And uh, Jains to this day, and not, not only that, so naked, but not naked completely even among the naked, uh, among the, the, the cotton clad, right? Uh, obviously, they wear white cotton, simple white cotton. They're monks and nuns. And, but both for the cotton and I think for the naked, uh, there is a nose piece, a cloth, that you will wear like a mask. Why? So that you won't accidentally breathe in any living things and kill them. Wow. Okay. And they walk with a broom. A <coughs> broom is part of their, uh, you know, kind of necessities that they need to have. And it's a feather broom, not feather, I, I don't remember what it's made out of, um, to sweep hmm? as they walk. Wow. So that you don't accidentally kill. And like in like a little bug
1: or something.
0: yeah oh. yeah, um and of course, you know, um, uh basically, they're not vegan vegetarian, they're not vegan in the sense that I think milk is allowed, but tubers are not allowed. You're tubers. tubers. I I Potatoes. Or, because you have to dig them out of the ground. And then, and then among the sky-clad, even more extreme than that, is um, like among the sky-clad, you, you could choose. like If you want to be really serious about it, uh, you won't even eat cultivated vegetables because that involves farming and working on the ground. So you only eat whatever has fallen off trees or died plants, and you just scavenge. Uh, and I think for both groups, uh, they, they, you, you can see they don't have hair, yeah? but unlike Buddhist monks and nuns where you shave your hair, right? They pluck it out. Yeah That's an you know ritual of plucking out every single hair. So what, what is understood by water? I don't know, as I said, you know, like what the reference here is. Um, I, I should have looked into it. Um, now Now specifically with the issue of karma, then, in contrast to the J- Jain position, uh, so now we can speak of like specifically the issue of karma Jains believe that uh, karma is fixed and not only that that when karma is created right when when moral when when actions yeah are created and to them intention doesn't matter all actions create karma And when actions are created, the result is a kind of spiritual substance that weighs down the jiva. Mm -hmm. So the only way to free the jiva is to increasingly over one's lifetime to reduce activity to nothing. So they don't see that as a metaphor at all. They see it literally. Oh, yeah. 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 And so the ideal way for for Jains to die is to basically stop eating. So when the time comes, uh, not just monks and nuns, even a lot of lay people, uh, they stop eating and drinking and say, this is the least... The final giving up of everything. So to fast to death. Now, of course, they don't advocate, you know, strong bodies fasting themselves to death. Uh, but when you know that it's time, then you stop. So, so in many ways, they are, you know, way more, if you look at it from the perspective of not causing harm, they are way more committed than the Buddhists are to not causing harm. Which also kind of illuminates that the Buddhist position is not necessarily about not causing harm. Not that it is about causing harm, but that's not like the main thrust. Yeah? The main thrust is something else. The Buddhist view about you know, why we act and what's a good way to act is different. So he, he rejects this. He says, this is too extreme. And so, so for him, for the Buddha, he says, no, you don't need a, a, a broom to sweep. But you want to cultivate mindfulness so that when you're walking, you're not causing harm. So in fact, the Buddha instituted a, a, a required period of not traveling for his monks and nuns during the rainy season. Because during the rainy season, the monsoon season, all the critters kind of come up. And so if monks and nuns travel, uh, they're more likely uh, to be crushing these critters and killing them. So during that period, he says, stay put, nobody moves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he was interested in minimizing harm, but not to the extent that the Jains were committed to minimizing harm, and we know that the Jain community, right from the get-go in the beginning, uh, was uh, vegetarianism was required. But the Buddha did not require that of his early community, so it's it's a different kind of. So this is the view: the fourfold restraint, If I you might want to look it up yourself, but. Uh, Next time we meet, maybe I'll say something about exactly what this is referring to. Then the last one is called evasion. Hmm? Uh, Sanjaya uh, Belataputta said to me, if you ask me if there exists another world after death, if I thought that there exists another world, would I declare that to you? I don't think so. I don't think in that way. I don't think otherwise. I don't think not. I don't think not-not. If you ask me if there isn't another world, both is and isn't, neither is nor isn't, if there are beings who transmigrate, if there aren't, both are and aren't, neither are or nor aren't, if the Tathagata, meaning like the one who is freed, exists after death, doesn't, both, neither exists nor doesn't exist after death, would I declare that to you? I don't think so. I don't think in that way. I don't think otherwise. Yeah, so I don't think in that way. Ah, uh So you mean like you think, ah, uh, no, I don't think that either. And I don't think not-not. Thus when asked about the fruit of the contemplative life visible here and now, Sanjaya Belataputta's answer with evasion. I think this is I mean it sounds kind of funny right and it's, it's, And there's some exaggeration here perhaps but this is I think it bears resemblance to the position that says I don't know yeah. and no need to know and so I've seen this uh, um, funny bumper sticker of course you know it's all about bumper stickers <laughs> And this one says radical agnostic in big print and then in smaller print. I don't know and you don't know either. <laughs> 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 so it's, it's sort of that view, you know, it's like I reserve judgment completely. And you cannot say that I believe this or that because I don't believe in any. Including I don't believe in not believing. So, elsewhere in Buddhist scriptures, kind of to to make fun of them, the Buddha called them the the ill rigglers. Mm -hmm. They will wriggle out of any situation. And they're non-committal to any position. Now there is also a Buddhist resemblance to this because later on uh, some people think Nagarjuna seems to be talking about seems to take this position the middle way position which say it's neither is or is not or both or neither but that's a very different use of that there is a position being staked out this one is more like Reserve all judgment and there's no way you can pin me down and that way I'm free here Buddha said no none of these he says is conducive to the kind of spiritual life that he considers to be uh, most noble and reflects most uh, like it's in sync with the nature of things. So remember I said, yes, of course Buddhists believe that what the Buddha taught us, what the Buddha showed, what the Buddha shared, is based on the reality that he woke up to. But the specifics of what he taught, uh, I suggested that it's not necessary for us to subscribe as capital T truths. What he taught to us, we should approach as strategies. To be tested out, to be examined, to be taken to heart, to be applied, and to see if it is true. Only when we see that they are true, do they then become True and real for us. And so the Buddha had, a, had, you know, like the Buddha is not just reserving all judgment uh, and saying, oh, I have no opinion. Oh, yes, he does. Uh, again, you know, uh, these six positions, you can see how it's easy to kind of slip into these six positions right? if we don't kind of understand yeah, where the Buddha is coming from and how yeah so it's easy to even interpret the Buddha's teachings along the lines of any one of these six positions. Questions? Comments <coughs> <laughs> within an hour or within a day <laughs> but you know if you could argue and say no but it makes me a better person then you know Buddha like, well I guess it does <laughs> see even though it's very clear he debated these groups huh? and he, he made con- converts you know People who used to follow that came to him. In fact, one of his biggest like patrons was a king who supported the Jains. Uh, This very famous Buddhist king called King Bimbisara. So, King Bimbisara, I think, earlier in his life he supported. uh, He was a a disciple of the founder of Jainism. Um, But at some point, at least according to the Buddhist, uh, he converted. And after he converted, I think one of his first questions to the Buddha is, uh, what do I do now I've converted? Uh, and I used to support yeah, all the Jain monks. You know, What should I do? Uh, Buddha says, you cannot stop your support of them. They rely on you. Right? You have to continue. break, 10 minutes. Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmainc.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.